On this episode of the Charlie the Median podcast, Margarita and I sit down with three scholars to discuss the troubling rise of police militarization. In part one, our panel explores the history of police militarization and how it parallels the increased activities of ICE and Border Patrol. We hope that you'll join us in this conversation with a cup of tea, coffee, or chocolate caliente. Listen, learn, and grow with us. The Charlie the Median podcast is a co-production of Lawrence Talks, Inc., and the KU Center for Latin American and Caribbean Studies. As always, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or online at lawrencetalks.org. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of the Charlie the Media and the Podcast. I'm your host, David Tamez, and joining me again as my co-host is Margarita Arroyo Nunez. And on our show today, we have three panelists joining us to share their thoughts and research on police militarization. And with that, Margarita, who do we have joining us at our virtual table today? So today we have Tinsley Spence-Michel. Tinsley is a public administration doctoral candidate at Westchester University. The NJ native holds a bachelor's in history from Rutgers University, Newark, and a master's in criminology and justice from St. John's University. She is currently working on her dissertation, which studies the role of comic books in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. She centers her research on inequities and in public administration and policy that affects marginalized communities. Thank you so much, Tinsley, for joining us today. Our next speaker is Rafael Acosta. Rafael Acosta grew up grilling under the shade of Rio Bravo's pecan trees. His current research project involves the political and legal matrices of effect that develop around culturally relevant stories and narrative figures. That or how stories convince us to do or not to do things in the political arena. His research interests focus on notion of comparative literature that uses Mexico and the United States instead of France-England-Germany axis as a nexus of meaning that allows for interpretation. Some of his articles are forthcoming in Online America Research Review and Comparative Literature amongst other journals. And our third speaker is Dr. Brandon R. Davis. Brandon R. Davis is a native of Alabama. He earned an MSW from Alabama AMN University and an MA in Women's Studies and a PhD in Political Science from the University of Alabama. Brandon is a former pre-doctoral and postdoctoral research associate at Brown University. His research focuses on American politics and public policy, race and ethnicity, and law and society. Brandon is interested in normative and empirical approaches to institutions, participations, and criminal justice. Thank you so much for all the speakers that are with us today. We are so excited to have you here and to have a conversation on police militarization. Thank you so much. Thank you, Margarita, and thank you all for, for joining us today. Um, and, and even though uh, Margarita provided a, a brief introduction to to all of you and your, your work, uh, I wanted to. We want to allow you some time to also to speak and elaborate on on some of these these interests. And we can begin with Tinsley. Yeah, I am a doctoral candidate. My research does focus on gaps in public policy as they affect marginalized communities. 
I recently, I was published um, my research on uh, trans bathroom policies. I posited that Jim Crow legislation as it pertains to bathrooms set the tone for and the standard legally as to how we see trans policies play out today. Yeah, in my free time, I'm just really doing my dissertation, which is a a task in itself. But I'm focusing, as you mentioned, on the... uh, the role of governance in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. A lot of my dissertation focuses on the film Captain America Civil War. And it's really interesting to watch a lot of Disney Plus while I'm doing my dissertation, which is exciting. And it's a it's a it's a great way to write my dissertation, but it's really a lot of um, the importance of collaborative networking and um, the goals that the Avengers had. And one thing that I truly believe is that if public administration broke them up, we can imagine what it does to regular people like you and me. Yeah. And I think that that's really, that's really about it. And when I'm not uh, dissertating the limited free time that I have, I watch a lot of Netflix unsolved mysteries. So I think I'm very equipped to talk about what we're talking about today. Thank you, Tinsley and uh, Dr. Davis. Thank you for having me. Uh, So a lot of my research focuses on criminal justice, but also to the extent to interactions with police interactions with the carceral state. And I look at the externalities and outcomes from people who have interactions with the carceral state. So I look to see how interactions with the carceral state, uh, which could be police stops, could be arrests, it could be incarceration, it could be family member incarceration. I look to see how those affect different uh, mechanisms that are connected to participation, like civic duty, feelings of political efficacy, internal and external political efficacy. I look at also how it affects well-being, because one's well-being is connected to if they're likely to participate or not. I, uh, most of my research is, uh, from, from that perspective, the interaction and contact with the institution. And Dr. Acosta. Yeah, well, um, I study how the stories we tell ourselves interact with our political actions. So the, the stories about the drug war, what do they lead us to think, right? Uh, a lot of people have uh, different experiences with police or with uh, the prohibition of several drugs and mostly construct the ideas they have about these subjects from narratives they see in film, TV, books. And those narratives tend to show political biases. And this is, of course, nothing new. This has been going on forever. And I studied a continuity about how we tell our stories of violence in Mexico and the United States since the 19th century. Great. Thank you. So our discussion today, or the topic of it, is the broad topic of, of police militarization. As we know, there's uh, this is a topic that has been a growing problem and a developing problem. And many uh, protests and reactions, not just here in the U.S., but also around the world. Currently, there's the, uh, the hashtag NSARS movement in, in Nigeria. And, and so the police militarization and, and, and police Brutality generally is something that starting to see is not just a, a U.S. problem, but is also a global problem. So I want to begin 
with a sort of maybe basic question about how we got here, how what's the history that has sort of led up to to this moment where police uh, as an institution has has sort of given way to this this sort of militarized view or this milita- militarized uh, approach to to policing and to criminal justice. Not sure who would want uh, would like to start, but yeah, Tinsley. A lot of research that I do posits that a lot of the way we see public policy now stems from slavery. So let's get into it. Um, A lot of the policing that we know exists comes from not just a culture of criminology, but uh, slave patrols. Modern policing is a form um, as a descendant of the slave patrols that we saw in the 18th century in states like South Carolina, where there was a large African-American population. um, They saw these slave patrols as necessary to quell rebellions and to incite fear into the enslaved population. They were really volunteer brigades of militias, but after the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, uh, state governments encouraged citizens, white citizens, to join and say, hey, we're going to pay you to join. And, you know, what they would do is they would go around, they would just walk up into the quarters and just just instill fear into the people. Modern police departments as we know it didn't really come until after during Reconstruction because now you have this free Black population. And this was a way that um, states were able to codify white supremacy by instilling these, these people who can enforce these laws against them. The first job of many police departments was to enforce the Black codes. And what you see from there is a a role where um, people were taught to profile. We see police uh, learning who belongs where, who should be doing what. And that's one of the foundations of police training to this day. They're taught to profile. They call that person the symbolic assailant. Who does belong, who belongs where? If you see a man, you know, in a trench coat, uh, at a, a school parking lot. He looks like there's something fishy going about. They're taught to profile. And sometimes what happens is that there is a racial identity that intersects with that profiling. And we don't see this just on the, as it relates to African-Americans, we see this as this country has um, dealt with its indigenous population and its Latin American population, because perfect example of this is the Texas Rangers. Um, the Texas Rangers existed in Texas as westward expansion was um, was happening. But one of the first tasks of the Texas Rangers was to enforce that the settlers were safe from the indigenous population and wherever their colonies were. And then post-Mexican-American War, they had to the Texas Rangers were to act as border patrol. So that's the first iteration of, I guess, Homeland Security that we or ICE even that we've ever seen was with the Texas Rangers to make sure people were where they're supposed to be. And I guess a, a subsect of that and in going into sociological theory is we see obviously the labeling of not only just behaviors, but those behaviors became tied to people and it, it became a, a hall of mirrors. They call it media loops which means that if we project an image upon something or someone, then that image continues as we see it throughout the iteration of life. These black, brown, indigenous people are dangerous. 
We've seen that then watch any Clint Eastwood movie you want to. We see that now, I mean, previously in, you know, Willie Horton ads, and we see that now, which is the danger and the lurking of the black male in society. So this, these are things that have uh, existed over history. So even before police departments, as we know, have been militarized, we see the extent from in the history that they have in them where they were middle, militarized slave patrols. Yeah, most of um, what I've researched on the subject goes along the same lines as what Tinsley was saying. Policing, or at least police for us people of color, does not come from an ideal of what police is, but from slave patrols, from the Texas Rangers, uh, and these are all just paramilitary forces that were designed to address racial anxieties that pertain to white people. It is difficult to speak about the subject because it becomes a really fragmented image of what police violence is and what exclusion is that say when we talk about this in relation to slave patrols it's just one way in which white americans have expressed their anxieties throughout history but then we see the texas rangers that were a corrupt force that dispossessed mexicans all throughout texas of their property and that often allied with the great robber barons of Texas history to allow them to take that property for themselves. And we, we see these issues as separate issues, but we rarely speak about the role that policing in Texas and racial exclusion of Mexican American Mexican Americans in Texas in the 19th century, how this process helped shape the Jim Crow laws. Because of course, Texans experimented with how to exclude the jure citizens de facto from society by doing this with Mexican-Americans. And then after the Civil War, when African-Americans along the South became the Jewish citizens in, in these societies, they used the same process to exclude them and segregate them. And while it, while it seems that the way all of us are um, segregated happens in different ways because our societies and our histories are different. They all feed back into each other. First, I say there's a there's a uh, there's a book called um, Empire of the Summer Moon, which is a great book about the the Comanche in Texas, and it talks about how uh, the Texas Rangers were developed because they came about because the Comanche were so effective at beating back white Western expansion. So it's a really great book. It's about the Comanche, but it's a really great book because it talks about the development of the Texas Rangers and, and what you know their, their purpose was to fight back against the Comanche. 
uh, I would say about police militarization, essentially in the modern police departments, we started seeing the development of SWAT teams in like the 60s in, in, in Los Angeles. So the LAPD was the was the hub of SWAT teams, um, was the development of SWAT teams. And they were used for what they were supposed to be used for, special weapons and tactics, people hold up in banks, hostage situations, things like this. However, with the passage of bills that allow departments to get militarized equipment, to get military-grade weapons and and, and vehicles and things like that, we've seen the expansion of SWAT teams into, you know, towns that are like, you know, 50,000 people, 60,000 people. And there's not enough crime or crime like that to require a SWAT team. So what happens is in these towns, the SWAT teams start to do normal policing. They start to serve warrants. They start to do arrest warrants. And what we find is that those SWAT teams are used, you know, or, or disproportionately towards people of color. And, you know, these people are kicking in doors. They're throwing in flash grenades. They're, they're causing irreparable harm, especially the children that are in these homes. They have to see their, their, one of their parents snatched out in the middle of the night or in the wee hours of the morning. Uh, this police militarization has led to this also this training of a warrior type training for police departments. Police officers are being trained that they're in a drug war, there's a crime war. Uh, police officers, when they go to these type, these type of militarized training, the first thing they're shown is desk cam of a police officer being brutally murdered. They show them people who get pulled over, most of the time it's pullovers, but it could be other things, but they show them these cameras footage of police officers being murdered. What they try to instill in them is that you could be murdered at any time. Anywhere, anytime, anything you're doing, someone can just murder you. So you have to take a war footing. And this war footing has created, it's gone hand in hand with this militarization. And so we see that, you know, we, we, really, we normally don't see it uh, because this kind of like kicking in doors and things happens to a, happens a lot, but to a small proportion of the population. We see it more when we see, when you see protests and things. We see protests, then you see the police out in the full body armor. You see the tanks they have. You see them pull, coming out in full force uh, against the against their, their own their own citizens. But the police militarization, I think, is 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 a, a, a equipment weapon weapon type things, but it's also a mentality, right? It's also a teaching mentality that you are a warrior and that you are against the people you are supposed to be serving. Instead of like a servant mentality, protect and serve, you are. What they, I think they call it, uh, you're sheep and sheepdogs. We are the sheep and they are the sheepdogs. And sheepdogs use violence to protect the sheep. And they take this mentality and that is how they police outside of policing with some community mindset or some type of servant mindset or some type of engagement mindset. Historically speaking, was there ever a time where there was this sort of, you know, decent collaboration between the community and its and its police? Was it always sort of, because as, as you I'll mention there seems to be a, at the very least, a, a culture of violence and a, and a culture of seeing the police as a, having a very not serving sort of uh, approach or relationship with, with their community, even though these are members of the, of the community, there doesn't seem to be that, that relationship there. Now for people of color, I would say no. I would say there was, there was no like leave it to beaver time with the police departments, right? We know that in the, you know, 19, whatever, 1930s and 40s that LAPD would recruit police officers from Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, because they wanted a certain type of police officer, right? That would bring some type of that, that type of them and us, you know, keeping the color people in line type of uh, policing. Uh, I don't think there ever was like this kind of Mayberry in for people of color. However, I don't, I also don't believe uh, that it was as violent 
as it is now, right? So we don't, we weren't we weren't seeing a thousand people murdered a, a year, you know, 20, 25 years ago, thirty years ago, and things like that. And we also did, but also we didn't know about it because you know there was no social media, you know, smartphones, stuff. we didn't really know about things like this happening, right? We said, and then we had to take the word of the police department that oh, it was something, you know, something happened, and that person was you know trying to hurt us or something like that. So I don't think there was like a, a sunshine era. For police and for, for people of color, I don't believe. I'm really thinking about what Tensley was saying about this history of the way that even you think about like white members in society were also trained to be part of this policing and thinking about the policing um, on black individuals. And um, I listen to many podcasts. One of them is NPR Code Switch. And one of the episodes is talking about Karen. And so I was thinking about the way that like Karens are a form of that. Like they're out there very much policing, specifically like black men. And they feel like it's their their right to just call the police on an individual who literally is just walking in some simple daily task. And the way, and when Tinsley was speaking, I like connected like how Karen is literally like a descendant of this very like intense policing. Yes, Margarita, there's actually a name for that. They call it the moral entrepreneur. Um, so the iteration of Karen is not an, uh, an anomaly. It's not an outlier of history. This is something that has historically been done. See Emmett Till. So when we think about these things, the moral entrepreneur is someone who makes it their business. I see the word entrepreneur to enforce what they believe to be morality and subsequent criminality. So, you know, this, these things, it, it's as if um, certain things that do not fit in the norms as society has constructed per their mind go into a subculture. And again, it enforces who should be where. And when you are um, not in a space where they deem that you should be, what are you doing? Where are you going? You know, it, it's essentially the reiteration of what the slave patrols were essentially there to do. The enforcement of black codes, the enforcement of Jim Crow laws. You're not supposed to be in certain areas. You're not supposed to take certain jobs. You're not supposed to have this certain amount of access that can make you close to me. And um, that's where the, the threat comes from. Now, to Dr. Davis's point, uh, we see a lot of people who are their communities, moral entrepreneurs, take on positions that are in police or law enforcement or positions of agency that allow them to do this legally. And what happens is, is that we think it puts, puts them in a position to when we see with Karen videos that they are not they're not enforcing the law. They're the judge, jury, and executioner. And that's completely different. And um, to that point, with regard to, has there ever been a, um, a moment of where African-American and other marginalized communities have felt safe by the police? I chuckled when Dr. Davis mentioned that it's not Mayberry. And it's, that's the truth. It's the truth. I think that um, when we think about the inception of these many militias, because that's what they are, um, they were not created to protect us. They were created to protect whiteness and white spaces and whatever whiteness means. And I don't think that there's any amount of representation that can undermine the fact that the institution has this history 
I think one of the examples that I've read in previous research is, is that um, when the L.A. riots occurred after the Rodney King verdict, a lot of the LAPD and certain SWAT groups, they went to protect areas like Bel Air and areas uh, that are more affluent and white. Rather, and they, I believe the, the research that I read, they sacrificed Koreatown because they had to protect whiteness. So it's not about protecting spaces of color, it's about protecting whiteness. And even with representation for um, black and brown and indigenous police officers, I believe there was one community in the South, I wanna say in Georgia, they had a, a black police department, but they did not give the black officers guns. So how are you equipped to teach these people to do a job and enforce community when you yourself don't trust them, why? What's wrong with that? So again, it goes back to the creation and the construct of what the institution is rather than who it's supposed to protect. If I may, I think that department, the police department in Georgia had the right idea, but for every cop, right? We should take their guns out of their hands. When I, when I speak about this with white people, white people are not used to being stopped for doing 65 on a 55 with your kid on the back seat and the cop approaching you holding their gun in a pose that is both threatening and making it really easy for that cop to shoot you. Whenever I speak with a blonde friend about this, Cops usually approach them with their hands in front, with a little notepad or something. Cops approach me, even if I have like my kids in the backseat, grabbing their gun and in a position where they can just lift and shoot immediately. But in general, I think that police militarization, an issue that arises from many failures, some of them willing. First, a failure of empathy, where a lot of people just don't care. They just don't care if a thousand people get murdered every year. They just don't care because it doesn't happen to them. We also have a failure of knowledge where a lot of people don't even know this happens. By this, a lot of people, I mean a lot of white people because no brown person of black or black person or indigenous person doesn't know that police kill people. That's just not a thing. But a lot of white people either don't know or didn't know or didn't care or it wasn't a salient an issue as it is for others. But an even bigger failure is that it is a failure of the imagination. I mean, we trace how police departments came out of paramilitary organizations and preserved a lot of these issues. But it, it's really hard for us to imagine how it can be otherwise, right? When people speak about defund the police or police reform or everything, it seems like we have a really hard time thinking about ways in which things can be different. And I can't believe, I really can't believe I'm gonna use Mexican police as an example for something, but 
I mean, in Mexico, most police officers are traffic police, transit police, they, they call it. It's different because like in the States, every state has, has a different form or everything. But, you know, most police officers, what they do in life is to check that people don't speed, to offer traffic infractions and all of this. And that's the same thing in Mexico as it is here. Most police officers aren't uh, stopping bank, bank robberies or whatever all the time. Like this is, I don't know what, what the percentage is, but it has to be a, a huge percentage of what they do. So traffic police officers in Mexico have no guns because you don't need a gun for to be a tra uh, traffic police officer. There's no need for it. And the same way that if a civilian has a gun and they bring it out, it raises the probability that somebody dies manifold. It's the same thing with a cop. Uh, even if you log into the common narrative that police officers are in danger all the time, and you put yourself in the shoes of an outlaw criminal. If you, if you get stopped by a traffic officer, well, you're less likely to, to kill them because you don't feel your life is as threatened as it is with our current system. Taking the guns out of police officers' hands would be much safer for everybody, right? It would reduce the possibility that people get killed, either cops or civilians or, well, we even use the word civilian in opposition to cops, right? Which is something we should not do. But what I mean by this whole failure of the imagination is that we can't even seem to step out of the police paramilitary mindset, right? We can't imagine a police officer who ha who doesn't have a gun, generally, right? So we have exceptions, but generally, in the police Im in the public imagination, a police officer is defined by having a gun, and we could live with police officers with no guns. That that would be perfectly feasible. It happens. It even happens in Mexico. I'm I'm not saying this happens in Norway. This happens in Mexico. Even with uh, 250,000 people who have died since 2006 from the drug violence, it happens. So it's possible. Bringing in, bringing in the topic of the border, there seems to be a parallel conversation that could be had and is being had regarding the increased activity of ICE and increased border protection and general vitriol in the debate about immigration, that there's more at stake or other interests involved other than just mere protection of the border and the economic viability of American citizens. And that rather it's an attempt or rather just another way or another means of protecting whiteness. And staying with you, Dr. Acosta, would you agree with this assessment? Or is there anything else that could explain the current state of, of our public discourse over immigration and developing humane ways to reform it? What else are they for? It should be abolished. It, it, it makes no sense. 
right? If, if we were thinking of racial equality in this country, ICE should be abolished. The job of uh, enforcing immigration laws, it should be something much closer to a civil worker kind of job. Our current system is designed from the point of view that people crossing the border are not human because people crossing the border are not treated like human beings. You have people, these horrible hypocrites who call themselves pro-life and who speak all the time about the value of a children's life and then support putting children in cages, taking them away from their parents, kicking and screaming, putting them in situations that threaten their lives, where they are raped, because we know ICE agents rape people in their charges. It, it just makes no sense, right? ICE and the Border Patrol, their whole purpose is to protect the idea of whiteness. There are economic arguments for immigration laws and all of this, and those can be debated forever. And there are different perspectives about how to handle them and not everybody will share the same idea I have, and some of the ideas might be feasible or not on, on both sides of the aisle. But what we have doesn't treat people like they're just human beings with a different passport. It treats people in ways that we should not treat animals. You should not treat animals that way. You should not put... <laughs> Ten dogs in a small cage. That, those are not ways in which people should be treated. Uh, this is all about anxieties, about racial and ethnic purity that have gone way, way out of any sort of proportion understandable to people. Most places, immigrating into the place is not a crime. It's a, it's illegal, it's an administrative fault or whatever. Another figure, just like doing 65 on a 55 highway. People do it and it doesn't make them criminals. It doesn't make them dangerous. It's just a fault. You pay a fine for your fault or you suffer some consequences for that. But it does not dehumanize you. It doesn't mean you're a threat to the existence of a country. The, the, the whole discussion about protecting the borders, it's insane. It, it's, not even, it's not even a discussion. It's just insane rambling. Bringing it back to a place where it's a discussion about policy and a rational way of making humans conform to rational 
procedures and goals, it's conceived as something radical. When Congressman Castro said that immigrating without documents into the U.S. should not be a crime, he was decried as being a radical leftist that was totally outside the, the realm of political possibility. And this just doesn't make any sense. It, it's not rational at all. This concludes part one of our conversation on police militarization. Join us again on part two. As always, thank you for listening. We ask that you like, subscribe, and share our little podcast with your friends and family.